Amen. Ephesians chapter 1, starting at verse 1, says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God to the saints which are at Ephesus and to the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace be to you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. And I don't, this is not my lesson tonight, but if you notice the first two or three verses of most of the epistles, Paul in his greetings uses this kind of language, speaking about God, speaking about the Father, speaking about the Lord Jesus Christ. It is not talking about uh, a variety or a number of persons, but rather it's a reflection of the offices or the roles that those things uh, fulfill. And if you uh, would like some more clarity on that, I'd be very happy to sit down and show you that after the service. Verse 4 says, According as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he hath made us accepted in the beloved, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace, wherein he hath abounded towards us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known unto us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure which he hath purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of times he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth even in him, in whom also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestinated according to the purpose of him that worketh all things after the counsel of his own will, that we should be to the praise of his glory who first trusted in Christ." in whom you also trusted, after that you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also after that you believed, you were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise, which is the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession unto the praise of his glory. Amen. Um, for the sake of a title, for Sister Jolena sitting back there at the computer, um, I'm going to teach, possibly just preach a little bit tonight about the redemption of the mind. The redemption of the mind. And are we saying in that last song, if, I, if my memory, now that I've read scripture, I've forgotten the words of the last song, but we sang about how he is our righteousness. And it's not our righteousness. If you look at the Old Testament, the prophet made it very clear that our righteousness is as filthy rags but he is our righteousness. And I want to keep that in the back of your mind as we begin this lesson tonight. Uh, last Wednesday night, if you were here, we spoke about bearing our own burdens and, and bearing one another's burdens as well. And we used Galatians chapter 6 as our platform. And as a part of that lesson, we recognized that the burdens that we can carry as individuals are often significantly contributed to by how we see ourselves. And that is how I see myself affects how I interact with others. And if that is not accurate or not healthy, then I'm going to add to my own burdens because of my own actions. And also I'm going to, my brethren, you, my brethren, one another, we're going to need to carry one another to a certain extent. 
And I want to revisit that idea for a little bit tonight, beginning with some of the points I want to bring out in Ephesians chapter 1. The idea of predestination is mentioned in a couple of verses in this chapter. And if you were here when Brother Woodward taught us on Wednesday nights uh, recently, you may remember that he explained the concept of predestination quite simply, but I thought very effectively by, by putting it in this way that what is predestined or predetermined is that there will be two groups of people that go into eternity. There will be a group of people that go into heaven and there will be a group of people that go into a godless eternity into that place that we know as hell. That's what's predestined and uh, that's, that's just how it is. And, but then verse 7 tells us that we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. All of us... The Bible lets us know that humanity was created in the image of God. We were all created to be in the going to heaven group, if I can put it that way. That was how we were created. That was the design. But when we sinned, our sin moved us from that group back across into the going to hell group. That's what sin does. It disqualifies us from going to heaven. But then the price that was paid on Calvary, and the word that we have here in verse 7 is redemption, or redeemed, which means to buy back, to pay a ransom, and to buy something back, that price the Lord paid for us gave us the opportunity to move back into the going to heaven group. And we thank the Lord for that. And sometimes, many of you are familiar with this idea, but we will sometimes say that there was a point in our past where we look to where we say, that's where I was saved. And then we talk about our present status. We talk about being saved now. But we also talk about the time will come when we will be saved for eternity or there will be a completion, if you like, to that salvation. And we know that although we are saved now, these bodies do not yet experience the full benefits of what salvation will ultimately bring about. Uh, Romans 8.23 speaks along these lines and it, it says that it even describes a groaning within ourselves that we wait for the adoption to wit or to know what it's talking about is the redemption of our body. Now, that same chapter in Romans 8, if you back up a few verses, talks, and I think it's in verse 15, it talks about how when we receive the Spirit of the Lord that we are adopted into the family of God by His Spirit. So that's, that's a spiritual thing that takes place, but there is, a, there is a redemption of these bodies that is yet to take place. It's not, the process is not yet completed. Philippians 3.21 also references this when it says, who shall change our vile body that it may be fashioned like unto his glorious body according to the working whereby he is able even to subdue all things unto himself. Now you might take offense that the scripture says you have a vile body. You might happen to be pretty impressed with the way you look and feel about yourself. But if you get sick, if you've got any corruption, your body's vile. The body that we will receive when he returns from his church, compared to what we have now, you will certainly agree that your body is, is vile now, or we would say corrupted. Amen. So right now, we live as believers in the space, if you like, between when we were born again and when our redemption will be completed. We live in that, that period, if you like, in between. And when we were born again... Our status changed, if you like, in a positional sense. We went from being lost to being found. 
We went from being sinners to being saved. We went from being in the world to being in the church. Not the building, but the body of Christ. We went from being on the outside to being on the inside. There was a positional change in who we are, but our status also changed in a relational sense. We went from being, I think Ephesians chapter 2 talks about us as the children of disobedience, or sinners, children of disobedience is a fancy word to say sinners, to being the children of God. We went from a place where we did not know God to via the gospel being introduced to God and then entering into a covenant relationship with God. And so it's not just about position, but it's about relationship that's changed as well. And so you and I can point to a time when we were baptized in Jesus' name and say with confidence that is based on the Scripture that that's when my sins were washed away. Some of you have baptismal certificates. Some of you may or may not. A certificate's not, you know, no one's going to be checking certificates at the pearly gates. But some of you have those which gives you the date, so you remember when you were baptized. And you can look at that day and say, in the name of Jesus, I went down in the water and my sins were washed away. And when we were filled with the Holy Ghost, we can point to that time and place and say that's when I was filled with the Spirit of God. And that resurrection power that the Bible tells us, that if we have the same Spirit that raised Him from the dead, that He will make these mortal bodies alive. Or the King James says He will quicken these mortal bodies, and which means now and when He returns for His church. And so if you're able to point to a place where you were born again of water and spirit, if Jesus returned right then, you'd be fully qualified to go to heaven. There's no other courses you need to do. There's no other accreditation you need. But if you've been born again of water and spirit and the Lord returned, you're fully qualified for, as Brother Slack would say, heaven going. And, uh, and although we believe and should believe in the soon return of the Lord, for this time being, we're in that, that space between the now and the not yet. We're living in the present, and I believe the not yet is not very far away. But we are in a place where we have been born again, if you've obeyed the gospel, and we are in a relationship, a developing relationship with Jesus. That's where we are right now. And so just, you know, we've established that our bodies didn't change when you were born again. Did, you change, did your body change when you were baptized or when you were filled with the Spirit? You might have been healed or something. That happens sometimes. People are baptized. People get the Holy Ghost. They receive healing. You might have been delivered from an addiction, but you didn't go into the baptistry five foot five and come out six foot neat. You didn't go in with blonde hair and come out with black hair. You didn't go into the baptistry and come out 10 kilos lighter. Otherwise, I'd be getting baptized once a week. Just keep that coming. Pizza all week and baptized on Sundays. It doesn't work like that. Our bodies, our physical bodies didn't change when we were born again. I know we could talk about once we became the children of God and our habits changed that they often do have a physical impact, but you're still who you are. You didn't have to reintroduce yourself to your workmates or your school friends or your family. They still knew who you were. But what else didn't change at your initial new birth experience other than your body? Your mind. This lumpy, squishy thing that some of us use more than others that we have in our heads. My knowledge, my way of thinking, my warped and corrupted perspectives were still very much there when we came up out of the water 
when we were filled with the Holy Ghost speaking in other tongues. He didn't have a brand new mind. How we wish we did. But we didn't. We, we, our sins washed away. Our record was cleansed in the sight of the Lord, freshly filled with His Spirit. But that mind that we had before the new birth was still there. And the relationship that we begin with Jesus starts a process that is purposed to change the way that we live and the way that we think. And that's not always easy. If you go back to Ephesians 1, the last two verses we read, verses 13 and 14, it says, In whom you also trusted, after that you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, after that you believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. I love that word sealed. It, it, to me, that, that's a picture of, you know, when you go to the, the supermarket and you go down the dairy aisle and everything's got a seal on it. It says, you know, if the seal's broken, don't eat this because the yogurt's nasty or whatever it was. Something's got into there. And, and that's, that's a little bit like what the Holy Ghost does to us. It, it puts a seal on us that says what's in us should never be contaminated by what's in the world. But if you're anything like me, from time to time in your own humanity, you break that seal and he has to reseal you again. But I'm glad that he reseals us on a regular basis. Amen. But it says, you were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise. And verse 14 says, which is the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession unto the praise of his glory. So I think most of us understand the concept from this verse that the Holy Ghost is given to us as the earnest of our inheritance. Earnest in its, that old English context speaks to us of a deposit or a down payment. You go to buy a car or a house or anything that takes a chunk of change, they'll often say you need a 10% deposit, you need a 5% deposit. You've got to put some money down to demonstrate that you're really going to go ahead with this purchase. And the, the Spirit of the Lord in us is the earnest or it is the deposit of our inheritance. In other words, that which we are yet to receive, that which is yet to be completed in us. It's, when we're filled with the, the Holy Ghost, it's as if Jesus said, here's a piece of my spirit that I want you to have until I come back to take you home. There's more of this. And we would say, you know, there's more where this came from. That's what he would say. There's more where this came from. He said, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And you're not able to grasp all of what that's about yet. But here's a piece of me to hang on to until I return. But when you have that earnest, you have that deposit and that down payment, it's not, just a, it's not an, an inanimate or a dead object like when you put cash down or you put a deposit down on, on some purchase. It's the living spirit of God. And it, if we allow it to, when he puts it in us, however long between the now and the not yet is, that spirit will, is active and wants to do something in us and to us and then through us. Sometimes we jump from in us to through us, but he's more interested in the to us before the through us. That sounds like a tongue twister. But God wants to change us, I believe, more than he wants to use us. Because if he can change us, the capacity for him to use us is increased. Not only that, he is not like the world. The world uses and discards. God doesn't use people and then kick them to the curb. God wants to, God will hold back from using you if he hasn't changed you to a point where you can take what he wants to do. 
The world says, use you, chuck you in the trash. But the Lord is more interested, as hard as it is for us to understand sometimes, he wants us to wait to change us so that when he does use us and he returns, we'll still be in this thing. People that get obsessed with the doing before they focus on the being often end up on the scrap heap. And we've got to take great care that we focus on what God wants us to be before we focus on what he wants us to do. Amen. And the Spirit of the Lord wants to work in us. And if we will allow it to, it's going to change the way we live. But as importantly, if not more importantly, the way we think and speak. Let's take a moment and think about what sin actually does to your mind. Go back to the Garden of Eden and think about Adam and Eve. And it's hard for us to think about them because they were perfect in every way. And that's a concept for us that, you know, you may think your spouse is perfect, and that's great if you do, but they're not. Not at least at the same level as Adam and Eve. Some of them might be close, but nobody is perfect like they are. They had no personality flaws, no insecurities, no flawed thinking, no attitude problems. Everything, their relationship with God was perfect, and their relationship with each other was perfect. And that's the very quick insight to let you know that your spouse may not be perfect because you know, your relationship might have some fun and games to work out along the way. Amen. But then, the, you see, their mind, it's hard for us to grasp, but in the garden, Adam and Eve's minds functioned exactly as they were designed to do, perfectly according to the designer's specifications. No margin of error, no, nothing out of balance, and we've got some engineering-type minds in here. Everything was perfect. It's kind of hard to grasp what a human mind without sin would be like. But Adam and Eve had that. They had that. They are in that perfect existence as they were designed to. But then they sinned. And the moment they sinned, they experienced things like guilt, shame, that really uncomfortable, awkward feeling you get when you've been caught doing something that you know you probably shouldn't have done. We've all had that experience, whether it was when we were kids or adolescents or even as adults. It's the first time Adam and Eve ever experienced those things. They went from perfectly balanced emotionally, psychologically, everything, to feeling guilty, to feeling shame to feeling failure. And then they, they did what humanity's done ever since. They tried to blame whoever happened to be closest enough to blame. Men have been blaming their wives since the garden. Unfortunately, ladies don't get to have talking snakes around too much to blame them. So, you know, what can you do? But you see, then it gets worse because then they, they, the polite way to put it is they move out of the garden or they're thrown out of the garden and they have two sons. Two healthy young boys, they grow up to be men, and then things go really bad. We know that Cain kills Abel, and then Cain flees. He's, he becomes a castaway. And so in a very brief period of time, Adam and Eve lose two sons that they will never see again. And then there are feelings that come with that. There's heartache. That was never in the design. There's grief. That was never in the original model either. There's failure. What did we do wrong? What every parent does. What did we do wrong? There was failure. There was devastation. You see, their minds were never designed to experience those emotions, 
those thoughts, those feelings that then begin to plague their minds and have plagued mankind ever since. And you and I were never cast out of the Garden of Eden and we may or may not relate to their family crisis. But our thinking is dramatically impacted by sinful actions. Ours, other people's actions, sinful thoughts and a sinful world. And getting back to where we were last week, and I'm not wanting to pretend to be any kind of expert on this subject, but how we feel about ourselves can cripple the blessings of being a child of God. Because this book is full of a whole lot more promises than just take away your sins and go to heaven. There's a whole lot more that God wants to impart into our lives that our mindset sometimes ties his hands. It's kind of crazy to think that you have the capacity to tie God's hands. But the way that you think, particularly about yourself, can really impact what God wants to do in your life and in his relationship with you. Amen. You see, the, the idea, we, we mentioned this just last week, but the idea of self-esteem, of having a high or a good opinion or a high regard of oneself, that's, that's something that's, that's become very promoted in our society in recent decades. That's why we have things like, um, you know, participation trophies. You know, where you get a trophy just for showing up. I mean... Everybody gets a trophy just because you turned up and you were warm and breathing. Fantastic. And I understand the idea is to encourage people, but I read an article just today, I think it was, that said that research is showing that what they were trying to achieve through that has failed miserably. It hasn't actually made people feel better about themselves. Because you only have to get to about five or six to realize that I didn't really get this trophy for doing anything worthwhile. I mean, if you're two, fair enough. But once you get to a little bit older and you start to realize, okay, we lost the game, I was the worst player on the team, and they gave me a trophy, you start to realize, whoopee doo da, I got a trophy. But that's this mindset that the world's in a bit trying to make everybody feel great. But it's an illusion. And the problem with the idea of self-esteem from the world is how do we measure what makes us feel good about ourselves? Where do we get those units of measurements from? What are the things that cause us the factors that we use to say, I feel good about myself? Because if we use the things of the world to measure ourselves, to have a healthy self-esteem, then our basis is sinful. It's not of God. And not only that, the things of this world and like everything else that comes through the flesh goes up and down like a roller coaster. The world looks for its value in things like popularity, uh, relationships, you know, having the right boyfriend, girlfriend, husband, wife, material success, finances, possessions, career success, and the praise of others and wanting others to like us and even be like us. But you don't even have to read the news media or, or look at something in the media to see that even the people that are famous that are celebrities, that have all these supposed things that they should feel great about themselves, are miserable. Superstars and megastars and film stars and, and great musicians, there are people that are still taking their own lives, 
going from one relationship to another, from one rehab clinic to another. So something in that formula is wrong. You do not find value in who you are in the things of the world. But if we will allow the Spirit of God, and again, that word allow is very powerful here. If we will allow the Spirit of God and the Word of God to affect our mind, we begin to understand that who we are is defined by God's Word rather than by the world system. Now, this is easy for me to read, and I'm, I'd love to tell you that I can read this out loud and you'll go home and never have any problems again. But it's not that simple because that brain of yours has had grooves carved in it over years of life. Amen. It's about knowing that power and success are not found in how good we feel about ourselves, but in our relationship with a reliance on Jesus. It's about intentionally setting out to learn healthy life and relationship skills from the Word of God, taking care of hurts that can plague us from the past, and looking to Him. And that just sounds like you take that home, you add water, you stir it, you drink it, and everything's beautiful. But it doesn't work like that. But that's, that's, the, that's the, the, the concise viewpoint that we need to think about. You see, when God looks at you, when God looks at you, He sees somebody who's been washed, somebody who's justified. In other words, you're considered to be right in His sight. Somebody who is sanctified. In other words, you are, you are holy and you are set aside for his purpose and committed and consecrated to him. That's how God sees you. Now, And we can all quote those scriptures, but believing them is not the same thing. That's why there's that verse I love in 1 John that talks about where, let me just flick there, it's not in my notes, so I'll actually have to turn there in a paper Bible. Um, where, where the apostle wrote and he said, and we have known and believed the love that God hath to us. There's, there's a reason it doesn't, he didn't just say, we've known the love that God has to us. He said, we've known and believed the love that God has to us. Knowledge is great, but taking that and making it yours is where its power's at. You can quote chapter and verse all day long, but unless you take that and internalize it into your mind and your heart, you can be a parrot with Scripture. But something's got to happen beyond knowledge. It's got to become genuine belief. And we talked a little bit about that on Sunday morning. Amen. We've got to recognize how God sees us and that he sees us as his child with everything that that entitles you to. You know, we... When, if you have children, you, you get a glimpse, and that's all it is, really, is a glimpse of how much that God loves us. Because even though parents have such an incredible love for their children, we're still limited. We're finite. He is not. He is infinite. And his love is unconditional. And so we, we can learn some lessons and draw some comparisons, but we can't say they're interchangeable because they're not. It's like trying to interchange a bucket of water with the ocean. You can draw some lessons from both, but they're not, they're not at the same level. And he sees you as his child and everything that that entitles you to. You know, parents, some parents say they're not, but the truth is all parents are biased to some extent toward their kids. Some ridiculously, and they need to be slapped. You know, when you go to, you go to a schoolyard and there's this little kid that, you know, oh, he's such a lovely boy and he's just set fire to the school and, you know, done all this stuff. And yet parents will just think, you know, 
there, there, is, there is a blindness that, that can come. But I think we are meant to be biased towards our children to a degree. Obviously, we've got to have some reality in the mix. If your kid's out there robbing banks, he probably isn't a wonderful young boy. But there is, because there is something in that, that parental relationship that overlooks. And we have that magnified at an incredible level with the Lord. Because he's not blind. He's accurate. He sees everything exactly how it is. But he looks through this lens called grace. And so that makes him biased towards us. He, he knows, the Bible says, he knows our frame, he knows we're dust, we're weak, we're all that stuff. But looking through his blood and through his grace puts a bias on how he sees us as his children. But we are on the other side of that and we see ourselves. And because sometimes, for some people, how we see ourselves is not how he sees us, the benefits of having him as our Heavenly Father are restricted. And we need to remember that. There's, for the sake of time, I've got a, a list of scriptures that I'm not going to read. But if you want them off me, please email me and I will get them to you. I ask you to email me because if you just ask me after service, I'll forget before I get out the door. But if you email me, I'll remember. But there's a whole lot of scriptures that talk about the fact that you are unique. You are unique. Custom designed by God. Every one of us... Some, some, there's a couple of married couples that are slapping each other in the church at the moment, bumping it. I'm not going to point out who they are, Sister Mandy and Brother Alan. But um, we are all custom made by God. Now, if you go down to Big W or Kmart and you want to buy a suit for church on the weekend, you'll get a suit at a pretty good price. But if you go somewhere to a bespoke tailor, to somebody who makes that suit just for you, there's going to be a little bit of a price difference. Probably about 15 or 20 of those Kmart suits. But it's custom made. It's exactly what you want, or at least that's the plan. And when God made you, he custom made you for his purpose. Now, sin may have messed that up a bit, but he can still see the end from the beginning. And so he can still see you through his grace and his blood. And you look at yourself and go, I'm this, I'm that, I'm this, I'm that. And he says, but what I see is a unique creation made after my image. You are created, all of us are created for his glory. Now, when we're in sin, it's kind of hard to see that. It's kind of hard. You look at what you used to be like and you think, how could I possibly give God glory? But he knows what you can be. And so you have a purpose that gives the Lord, you have a unique purpose for your life. Nobody can take your place. In the very anointed writings of the philosopher Dr. Seuss, he said, nobody is newer than you. You are unique. Maybe not anointed, but it's a good book nonetheless. But there is nobody like you. Now, does that mean that if you cease to exist, the world will stop spinning? No, it won't. But there is a piece of the puzzle that is gone because God has made you to fit just the way you are. His love for you is unconditional. You are the object of his love. His love for you is sacrificial. Let's think about the cross. You were created to succeed. Now, let's be careful how we define success. Success is not the big house on the river and the Lamborghini or the Ferrari or... 
or the, the bank account with the black Amex card. That's not success. That's, that's actually vanity. Success, spiritual success, is defined by making it to heaven and being what he wants me to be in between, between the now and the not yet. That's spiritual success. And if, if God has designed you to, I don't know, fill in the blank with anything that you can think of that other people might not even consider important, but if that's what God wants you to do, and you do that with all your heart, to the glory of God, you are a success. There's nothing worse than somebody wanting to be something that they're not supposed to be. People that want to sing. I'm not even going to go down that road. That's not your calling. You are not designed to be a singer. Somebody needs to receive that in Jesus' name. No, I'm just, no I'm not, I don't think we have that problem here. For, for a moment or two, let's think about a couple of reasons why we may not like ourselves, which affects how we think about ourselves. Failure. Anybody ever failed? I'm not talking about an exam. Some of you weird people don't know what it is to fail an exam. Us normal folks did that plenty of times. But we've all failed in one way or another. And most of us, if we're honest, we remember our failures better than anybody else does. We don't like ourselves because of things that have happened in our past. Criticism or abuse from others. We're not real happy with our presence sometimes if we don't feel accepted from others. And the lack of faith in God and our future and God's love, we don't like ourselves because of the future we think we've got coming ahead. But all of that is the old person. All of that is designed by all of those things that we've had in our minds that God did not, you know, our minds were not designed to hold all the junk that sin has put in them. And when you add something that doesn't belong, you void its warranty. You know, if you get a piece of technology and, you know, you take the back off your laptop, there'll be a little sticker in there saying, if you remove this battery, the warranty's off. Because the manufacturer knows that most people aren't qualified to play with their product and so they won't guarantee it anymore. And so when we add things to the mind that God designed that weren't supposed to be there, we corrupt it. And we've got to begin to unlearn some of those things. Amen. Bless the Lord. Learning to like yourselves. Again, we're not talking about self-esteem. When your identity is found in him, nothing can touch that. Because he doesn't change. Your identity is found out there, you're in for an up and down roller coaster ride. But when your identity is found in him, it's secure. We have to learn to accept God's love. We have to learn that he has forgiveness for everything that we've done. And we need to let some of that, those things go. Brother Woodward spoke about release. We need this forgiveness. There's getting rid of some things, accepting things we can't change. There's a whole lot of things, and I'm happy to email any of this, this list I've got to people. But... This is what I'll close with as you stand with me tonight. The Spirit of the Lord and the Word of God are working. I wanted to say together, but that makes it sound like it's two different things. Really, they're one and the same. They're working to get us to see ourselves as He saw us the moment we were saved. And really, if you want to get into it, He saw us before we were even saved. But the moment that you were born again, 
the spirit and the word are saying, all right, let's start to change them so they can see themselves how God sees them. Now, that's an easy lesson to teach. Does that mean that the pastor's got all that together, that I almost always feel wonderful about myself? No, I don't. But it's part of the journey, is God changing the way that we think, accepting his love, finding our identity in him, not in this world, putting our past under the blood and allowing his word. You see, many of the ways that people think has been carved in, for some people, decades. But if you will start to take the word of God, you know, there's, there's nothing wrong with quoting the word of God out loud. If you're somebody that has a problem with how you think about yourself, get a whole bunch of scriptures that talk about how God thinks about you. Start to memorize them. Start to put them into your heart and into your spirit. And what will happen is slowly but surely they'll begin to seep into your mind. Amen. Bless the Lord. Let's lift our hands and just worship him for a moment. Let's thank him for where he's brought us from. Let's ask him to help us to allow his spirit and his word to transform our minds and to become changed to think that the way that he wants us to think, that we are his children. That's not about us. That's not boastful. That's not proud. That's the declaration of his awesomeness because it's his love. It's his grace. It's his righteousness. It's his blood. It's his mercy. It's all him. So it's not about us, but we are found in him. We are his 